Good morning and welcome to the LA Intergroup's Thanksgiving in the Park, a tradition which has been going for over 20 years. We're so excited that all of our friends from all over the world are here to join us. And this morning we're going to start with a reading. Jenny, if you would like to take it away and read on Awakening for us, please. Jenny, compulsive overeater. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers will come after we have tried this for a while. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be, that we be given whatever we need to be to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no request for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. If circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. If we belong to a religious denomination which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. Thank you so much, Jenny. So as Overeaters Anonymous has grown a lot over the last few years during the pandemic. For me, one of the exciting things to watch is the young people's group and how that has grown. Because when I came in here many moons ago in my 20s, there really wasn't anybody who looked like me. And today there are so many young people, again, several of them here today. So our first speaker, Ian F., is one of those young people. Ian, welcome and please share your story with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. Hi, my name is Ian F. I'm a compulsive overreader. Um, very grateful to be here. This is a huge meeting. It's awesome. <laughs> I love seeing all those smiling faces. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, uh, I'll start where I always start, you know. Um, I've been a compulsive overeater all my life. You know, I uh, I don't have a memory of not uh, not being in absolutely infatuated with food. Um, even when I was little, that was, uh, you know, I had, I always had this feeling of, um, I don't belong. And the one thing that fixed that was, 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 was sugar, was flour, was something I could, I could put in my mouth. And, um, 
you know, there was, there was just this, I, 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 I think it's, it's so important to me that, that I focused on like how lonely I felt. Um, and I'll, I'll get to why that is later, but like the absolute loneliness of this disease, it hit me at a very young age, you know, just, just feeling like even in elementary school, even in preschool, you know, being on the playground and, and not being able to play with the other kids. Cause I just didn't, I didn't belong with them. And, um, and going in elementary school and feeling that same way. And just, you know, every time I would walk into a room feeling like everybody else here knows exactly what's wrong with me <laughs> and I don't, and, and I just don't, I don't belong. I, I could never identify with anyone. I could never connect with anyone. Um, and I always was looking for a reason why that was. And that was really infuriating, you know, there's 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 so much so much pain and in, in, um in in that fast of the disease and uh yeah i mean long story short i felt really lonely i tried to plug that with with food um and i discovered very early on that when i started eating food i could not stop and like I, I knew that when I was like 14, you know, which I think is really crazy. This idea that I had the awareness of when I put food in my body, there's nothing that I do is going to, is going to be able to stop that. And I remember standing in the shower one morning when I was in middle school and poking at my belly and, and thinking about how fat I was and how that must be why everybody hates me, you know, which I had no proof of by the way. Um, and I just remember thinking like, man, if I can't stop eating when I start, everybody hates me because I'm fat. I just shouldn't eat, which made total sense to me at the time. And so I started the cycle of, at first I was just counting calories. And then I started restricting my calories a little bit and then more and then more and then more. And gradually I got to a point um, where I was 82 pounds um, and you could, you know, you could see on my ribs, you could see on my vertebrae, all that, you know, the, the familiar anorexic story, you know, that was, that was very much me at the time. But I think, I think the thing that stands out to me most about that was that the loneliness that I felt was not, was not soft, you know? Um, and yes, of course, like I have, I have, I had some body image issues, you know, I didn't really understand what a healthy body looked like, but more than, more than that, you know, what I, what I was trying to solve with this stuff, with, with eating food, with, with starving myself was that I, I never felt loved, you know, and that's not because nobody ever showed me love. Like, like everybody has a different story, but for me, I come from two parents who love me dearly. You know, I've, I've never been mistreated by my parents whatsoever, never been mistreated by my, my family at all. I come from a middle-class household. I had a, a decent education, you know, there was, there was nothing for me to be coping from, you know, um, and my, my parents and my family and my friends, they'd say, you're, you're smart, you're, you're a handsome young kid, you know, you have, you have talents, you have all these things, we love you, we love you, we love you, and I just couldn't feel it. You know, I just had like this, this hole inside me and I couldn't fill it with food, <laughs> you know? Um, and when I, when I thought that maybe, oh, I'll just starve myself, you know, and then I'll be, I'll be thin and people will think that I'm attractive and people will think that I'm cool, you know, I still didn't feel loved. Um, and yeah, like, like that was. All, all the all the physical stuff you know I, i've i've told my story so many times and I'll, and I'll talk about like oh i had i had all these graphic symptoms like i had bloody diarrhea and i was so deathly thin and and i would just i would wake up at nine and i would need to vomit you know all this stuff and, and yeah like this disease is really gruesome and, and I, I don't ever want to put a, a i don't ever want to invalidate that side of it because it it's really bad, you know, but I think 
the most painful part of this disease to me was just was just the loneliness, just the feeling that I never belonged anywhere, anywhere at all. Um, and I remember when I really hit my bottom was not what I would call my physical bottom. You know, what I would call my physical bottom was when I was 82 pounds, you know. Um, but when I was when I was fed up, when I really realized that I was powerless over this thing was a couple years after that. And I was at a healthy weight and I was in the cycle of binging and then purging by over-exercising and then starving for a day, you know, just over and over and over again. And I was a healthy weight, right? Um, but I knew, I known that I hit my bottom because I just, the reality of what I'm doing to myself is killing me because it's causing me this, this physical pain. And also that I've spent the past Christ, like decade of my life, which is most of my life, <laughs> you know, looking for, looking for this feeling of belonging in food and not finding it. The reality of that just hit me, you know, the, and, 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 and the reality of, these things that I'm doing, like I'm watching myself in third person go to the fridge and, and, and pull these things out. And I, and I know that it's going to hurt me. I know what's going to happen and I'm still doing it. Um, I really hit my bottom when I just couldn't escape that reality. Uh, and, you know, past that, like somebody asked me recently how I knew um, I was ready, <laughs> which I think is a great question. Like we talk about in step one, you know, step one is the only step you have to work perfectly and you have to be desperate. And, you know, I was just, just like, how desperate is desperate? And to be honest, I didn't have an answer for them. And, and I don't know if I, I don't know if I do now, like if I have a concrete answer, all I knew is that um, I felt ready then, you know, and, and I, I talked to someone who, had this brilliant idea that had never been introduced to me before because I was, I was in a local OA and they talked all the time about um, taking the tiger out of the cage three times a day, you know, how that's what food was and that's how what's what OA was is that you would, you know, you're a food addict and the difference between us and an alcoholic is that we have to use our addictive substance three times a day. You know? And I talked to this person on the phone and she was like, there's no tiger. There's no cage. <laughs> you don't have to do that. And that blew my mind. And the next thing that she said, though, was, are you willing to do anything it takes to recover? Like, if you want that, if you want a life where there is no tiger and there is no cage, are you willing to do anything that it takes to recover? And I didn't even need to ask myself if I was ready. And there wasn't a thought that crossed my mind. I was just like, yes, <laughs> I have nothing left. I have no ideas left. I have, I have no, nothing else to try. Yes, I'm willing to do that. And then what followed was, was really just the steps, you know. Um, and I don't think there's anything that I could say um, that could blow anyone's mind or there could be any any more profound than just what the steps are in the big book, you know, because they really are. Um, they're, they're really brilliant, you know, and, and, and I think the thing that I struggle with the most is that they're not complicated. Not one of the steps is complicated. Not one of them is a, is calculus or rocket science, you know, um, all that they require is honesty and willingness. And that was really, um, that was really confusing to me because I, I've always felt a need to, to, to be the smartest person in the room to, to be a, a grade A student, to be super talented. I wanted to be a star in OA, I really did. And like, like doing what I'm doing right now, I remember when I started out, I was like, people are gonna ask me to speak and it's gonna be so fucking cool and everyone's gonna love me, <laughs> you know? And that's totally natural, right? You know, cause I'm self-centered, right? <laughs> it's like, I see you guys laughing, but it's like, that's, um, that's what my, that's what I really wanted back then, you know, and, and, I think that's so funny now because there's there's nothing that brings me more joy now than than listening to someone else share their story, 
you know, and there's nothing that brings me more joy than just like being in the room with you. I don't care if I'm speaking. I don't care if I'm a tech host. I don't, you know, whatever. Um, but it's like that, that need to be loved, that need to be focused on, to be adored. Um, that's just not, I feel so weird to say this, but that's just not at the core of my being anymore, you know? And I think that's recovery, you know? Um, I no longer, I no longer rely on the adoration of other people. I no longer need to manipulate and con and, um, and get things out of other people, you know, with, with, with the steps, like this process of admitting who and what I am, acknowledging that I have this problem, and then taking an honest look at how self-centered and angry and afraid I've been and looking at like, wow, I'm so afraid of people not liking me. I'm so angry at people when they don't live their lives exactly the way I want them to in a way that will benefit me, <laughs> you know? I've hurt people by trying to get something out of them, whether it was love or money or food, or, you know, name, whatever. And living that way has only caused me pain. Like seeking those things out, seeking love from other people has only ever caused me pain and caused other people pain. And that realization is really crazy to actually feel that and to be relieved from it. You know, in step seven, it's like, relieve this. God, please take this away from me. Because the thing that's on the other side of that is this really beautiful way of life where I don't have to worry about whether anyone else in a room loves me because I have all the love I will ever need right here. You know, that's what higher power means to me. Everybody has to find their own definition of a God of higher power, but that's what it means to me. It's just, it's just love, you know, and, and that, that hole that I had when I, that I was trying to fill with food, I filled out with love. I filled out with God, right? And I go anywhere, anywhere at all. I don't have to worry about whether people love me because I already have all the love I need, you know? And I can just go and I can trust that I'm going to be okay. And what's after that, what's step 12 is like, the, the joy that I find in life is, is sharing that love with other people, you know? And, and I heard somebody speaking yesterday about the opposite of jealousy. And I have no idea what the word was. It was some funky dictionary word, <laughs> compersion maybe. Um, but it was this idea of like joy derived from the success of someone else. And that is a, that is the, that is a much, much, much fuller, real joy than anything I've ever felt at my own success, you know? And, and it's great for people to tell me, you know, oh, you're smart or, oh, you're handsome or, oh, I think you're really funny or whatever. But there's something so magical about, you know, like working with a newcomer and then seeing them grow and then re recognize their own defects and then have this spiritual awakening um, and seeing somebody else experience this wonderful thing and, and really start to enjoy life. Like there's, um, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like what we have in, the, in these rooms. And I mean, it's, it's a day of gratitude today. I mean, I think the thing that I'm grateful for today is that I don't have to seek constantly i don't have to seek for for love and adoration and and approval because that's totally what i'll do you know and like i said earlier like if i'm if i'm speaking in front of a whole bunch of people you know part of me is like i, I need everyone here to think that i'm funny i need everyone here to think that i'm profound i need everyone here to think that i have this really beautiful story you know <laughs> and um you know i genuinely like I don't have to, I don't have to have those things today. You know, I just don't. Um, and that's, that's, that's mostly what I'm grateful for is like, I can, uh, 
I can go anywhere, I can do anything because I have a higher power, you know, and I can sit back and I can listen and I can spend time with all you wonderful people. Um, and man, like I have, a, I've had a couple days, I just got off the, like a month or so of, of having a lot of long work days and I would get to the end of the day and I wouldn't have made any calls. I would just remember being like, I really miss my sick people. I really miss my sick people. Um, like what I, what I thought this program would be because people would tell me this is a lot of work. This is a lot of work. You got to work really hard and you do, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to um, say that you don't because this work is really hard. But um, I think what almost doesn't get said enough is that you do this work long enough and it no longer feels like work. No longer feels like work. I could talk to anyone on this meeting for literally hours and I, I wouldn't even register that it was hours, you know? Cause that's just how it is. That's just how it is. It's, it's, um, this program is so full of love. Um, and if you're, and if you're new and, and this all seems really yeah, intimidating you have three more minutes. You, three more minutes, thank you. Um, if this all seems really intimidating to you, I feel you. It is scary. Like, like the, the step work is scary and the, the meeting new people is scary. I was terrified to call folks. I, you know, I get all up in my head about whether they would want to talk to me or, you know, do they want to spend time with the newcomer? And the answer is yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> there is nothing that, that any, any one of us would rather be doing than, than spending time on a newcomer. Um, and so if you're new or you're struggling or you're just having a bad day, just know that, that we're here to hold you. Um, and there's nothing that you can do that will ever exempt you from the love that's in these rooms. Nothing, nothing at all. Um, doesn't matter how big or small it is. Um, that's about all I've got to share. I know I have a few minutes left, <laughs> but that's it. I love you guys. And, uh, thank you for having me and I will pass. Thank you, Ian, so much. That was just, anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, next we have another reading from another one of our young people. Miss Sarah P, would you like to unmute? Thank you. Good morning. All right, this is page 180. The question which might naturally come into your mind would be, what did the man do or say that was different from what others had done or said? It must be remembered that I had read a great deal and talked to everyone who knew or thought they knew anything about the subject of alcoholism. But this was a man who had experienced many years of frightful drinking, who had had most all the drunkard's experiences, but who had been cured by the very means I had been trying to employ. That is to say, the spiritual approach. He gave me information about the subject of alcoholism, which was undoubtedly helpful. Of far more importance was the fact that he was the first living human with whom I had ever talked, who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. He knew all the answers and certainly not because he had picked them up in his reading. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And as we continue to extend our hands and hearts, we're going over to somewhere where they tell me Midwest is best, over to Chicago to Michelle M. Thank you, Michelle. Hey, everybody. I am Michelle M., gratefully recovered compulsive overeater. Ian, tough act to follow, man. Grateful to be here with you all. Um, so to start out by qualifying in, I have an abstinence date of February 1st, 2021. Um, I work with a sponsor, I sponsor, um, and I work this program like my hair's on fire to the best of my ability. And as I was getting ready and doing some prayer and meditation, I was thinking, what were the holidays like, right? Like when we get into our everyday life and we put down the food, it's so easy to forget a little bit of what were those little minute things and details that I used to do with the food. So to lay it out, the holiday from a food perspective, any holiday, the food was always the same the rest of 
365 days a year. When I was in the food, I didn't care what day it was. If I wanted it, I got it. If I had a craving for something, it was at my house within 30 minutes. I struggled very much with online food ordering. Um, And I was thinking, you know, Thanksgiving a handful of years ago, what it looked like would be, I would wake up, I would have my first binge at about 10, 30, 11, just like I did every other day, always around that time. I would pack a change of pants because absolutely couldn't go home in jeans after the amount of food I was about to consume. And I would drive to my mom's and I would maybe pick up whatever I needed to pick up. And I would be completely in my head or freaking out about whatever it was that was on my mind. There were no phone calls. There was no connection. For me, I really just wanted to hide and eat. And the way that my disease manifested itself was not an outwardly shout like the Hulk, but it was a very silent quiet when I was around people and I would distance myself from everybody. And I was preparing for that with my entire family uh, that I was about to see. And I would get into the house and the way that would look would be, sorry, I just realized I'm starting timer. Um, The way that would look would be, um, I would start the ongoing graze of the night or the day, uh, since we do it a little bit earlier over here. I would pick and eat as I kind of went through. I didn't really want to talk to anybody. If I did, I always had a plate of food with me. Um, when we would sit down to eat dinner, I would get an enormous plate of food because in my mind, this is a holiday where it's acceptable to overeat. Like you're expected to overeat, at least in my family. And then I did something that, uh, I completely forgot about until yesterday. And I would, I would go around and I would bring the plates in because I was a nice person and I would bring the plates in and I would bring just one plate at a time. And anytime anybody said, let me help you, let me bring the plate in with you. I'd say, absolutely not. I got this. I am going to do this. And I would go into the kitchen and I would eat handfuls of things in secret. And I did this about 10 times through. My mom would say, take two plates. What's wrong with you? And I'd say, no, I don't want to break the plate. I need to go slow. I'm really full. And while I would do this is I would be sneaking handfuls of rolls and I would be stopping in the bathroom and shoving it in my hand. And I would be what, what route and what place, how am I going to navigate through the house? And I, Thanksgiving was, whether it be Thanksgiving or any holiday, it was always, what are you going to give me? What are you going to take from me? How can I get more? And I lived that way every single day. Like I was constantly going through life with a barricade in front of me with every single person, place, and thing. And I've been in program. I came to the rooms coming up on five years now. And I worked a number of different abstinences. I worked with a number of different sponsors. I tried all different types of things and I would sit and I would cry and why can't I get abstinent? And it would be the same thing over and over every single day. And I would sob on the phone. I just want to be free. Like, is this really, is this a, is this a load of garbage? Like they can't really be talking about freedom. There can't really be freedom of food. And my higher power led me and put certain things in my path that got me to a place of I'm done. Brought certain people into my life, showed me certain experiences that they had, gave me hope, like real hope. And little by little, this barrier started to break. And right at the right moment, not my moment, God's moment, someone said, you will, you might never be this willing. And I got abstinent. 
And I started to work this program like my hair was on fire. And I did that by stopping the questions. I stopped trying to fight with everybody, right? If I'm asking you, what did you do to get better? And you're telling me, and I go, well, I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. But I was so out of ideas. I was so out of, I, there, I got nothing left. I've tried it all. And I remember one of the first things I said, and I really want to focus on service and gratitude in this share. One of the first things I said to my first sponsor was, I'll do anything you say. But I want you to know, I don't want to sponsor. I don't want to be a sponsor. And I will call people because I have to, but I don't want to do it. And I'll go to these meetings or I'll do this journaling or uh, meditation or prayer, but I don't want to do it, but I will do it anyway. And I, the way that I think about service now, is I didn't start wanting to do service until after I experienced genuine gratitude for what has been so freely given to me. When I worked this program and got genuinely sober, really sober, not this form of program I was working before, which was abstinish, I love that word of, you know, I, I get to negotiate what I'm powerless over. Love that I thought I could do that. But when I got really clean and I took a real honest look at what, what am I doing, right? Like that was the word, the, the phrase in my life when I would be in the food, I would have these moments where I would kind of look around and I'd be sitting on my couch surrounded by boxes of food or, you know, covered and whatever. And I'd be thinking to myself, like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? You know, like I think of like being at a prison, like get me out of here. What am I doing? And when I finally experienced quiet in my head, like genuine quiet, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, how am I going to stop eating? When am I going to have the next bite? What is this person doing to me? What is that person doing to me? And sometimes it gets loud. I'm not going to say it doesn't. But when the food craving and that pull, I, I love in the doctor's opinion, we were, we were trying to, what is the word? We were trying to outrun a craving beyond our control. Like constantly running. Like I, I can be a runner, right? Like that's one of my character defects, working on it with the help of God. But when I finally got that quiet and that peace and that serenity of like, oh, this is a real thing. You could have told me to jump out of an airplane to keep this recovery and I would have done it, would do it. I mean, thank God I don't have to do that because I don't like heights. But that gratitude of, oh my God, this is real and I get to feel this way and my body is changing and I'm no longer pre-diabetic and I get to be off cholesterol medicine and I get to go shopping and buy clothes that, that actually like look good, right? Like I'm not walking around in a bag anymore and people enjoy the energy around me and I enjoy their energy. And it also comes with a whole other side of emotions, right? Like being in this program, being recovered, it doesn't mean we don't experience anger. It doesn't mean we don't experience sadness or heartache or anxiety. All of that comes with the promises of this program. And the difference in this program is we have principles that show us how to work through those without picking up the food. And that gratitude of, oh my goodness, was so strong in me. Those actions of, okay, I'm going to call somebody because I don't want to hear my own voice anymore. And I knew it worked. I knew picking up the phone and calling somebody 
to hear how their day was going. And yeah, I talk about my day too. But to genuinely listen is what continues to change me on a daily basis. And, you know, listening, that's something that I've really been trying to bring more and more into my heart, to be an active listener, to really hear what the other person is saying, to not just sit and wait, when am I going to have the perfect share? Or, you know, what am I going to say? Like, finish up what you're saying, because I want to talk now. Because for me, I can be a talker. And that that listening goes along with, with pace, like slowing it down. When I'm in my disease, when my disease is running the show, everything wants to go so quick. I want it my way. I want it to look like this. I, I think of, um, I think of like a giant life-size chessboard, and I am just directing which chess pieces are going where. And like it says in the book, I'm almost always in collision, right? Walking upstream when I'm not following what my higher power wants. And, you know, service is really what has saved me, um, especially these last handful of months. And it's not always like I wake up every day and I'm like, I can't wait to have all these calls and do all these things, right? Like I want to jump into the day and I want to get ahead of it. But it, it forces the pause. It forces me to slow down. And I just wanted to say, you know, I don't know why, I, I was talking to somebody recently and she was saying, I'm having food thoughts, but I'm recovered and I'm afraid to share it. I'm afraid of what people would think. And I've been there. And I thought to myself, what other place to share? And we get it. And on a day like today, <laughs> where whether you're in the food, out of the food, going to be around people in the food, whatever, get support. I need support. We're not meant to do this alone. We're not meant to walk this life alone. This is a we program. It's not a me program. And when I try to take it back and make it a me program, which I do because I'm a human, everything is complicated and uncomfortable. And it's like a poison inside of me. And even in those moments where it's like, I don't want to call somebody. I don't want to call somebody. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And I do it. 99% of the time, I can't think of a moment where I've called somebody in a moment of need, food related or not, especially when I'm in the self-pity spin. Man, has that been loud recently for me. Every time I do that and get outside of myself, I feel better. My head is the most dangerous neighborhood on the block. I'm not meant to be in it alone. And when I am in it alone, I do all sorts of things that get me back to the food. My best ideas get me to almost 80 pounds overweight. Sitting and watching life outside of a window and just choosing to not participate. Michelle, you have five more minutes. Thanks, Kelly. Um, and just the fact that this program has given me a gift of actually craving connection rather than isolation. And when I notice, hey, I want to shut down and isolate a little bit, instead of sitting and thinking on that now and thinking, you know, maybe I'll do that, I do the opposite, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Because every single person on this call is my family, accepts me 100% the way I am. And I just want to close by reading a beautiful little prayer. And it is called, I am thankful for. Higher power, I am thankful for the people to whom I can relate in all situations. I am grateful for all of them. 
for those called family who provide community, for those called sponsors who give guidance, for those called enemies who help me see my faults, for those called colleagues who share responsibility, for those called teachers who instruct me, for those called helpers who enable me to seek help, for those called comforters who dry my tears, unafraid of my weeping. And I'm also going to add for those called fellows because I, I have a place where I belong. I have a place with every single fault. I am an imperfect human being. I can share that with anybody here. And I'm not judged for it and not chastised or told this is what I go need to go do or check myself into another program. And I also have a higher power that will drive with me on my way to my mom's today and is with me right now and 24 seven. And I'm really grateful to be able to see that. So with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Michelle. And that was a beautiful, beautiful reading. And I know all your Chicago cheerleaders are clapping extra loud. I saw they're all here. You brought the gang. Okay, now we're going to go all the way over to Liverpool in the UK, home of the Beatles. And Rachel has a reading for us. Go ahead, Rachel. Hi, my name's Rachel, compulsive Rita. Um, and this is from chapter seven, um, working with others in the big book, um, page 89. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers, and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. So I specifically chose a lot of the readings for people. And our next speaker, everyone here is my friend, but he's a member of one of my boy band friends. who didn't always want to be my friend when he used to sit in the back of the room with his arms folded and his hood on. And I persisted because I'm sort of like that and would always say good morning. And like it says, you know, a host of friends and experience you must not miss. And so our next speaker definitely is a bright spot in my life. So we're coming back to L.A. to our outgoing events chair on the L.A. board. And my friend O'Ray, take it away. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Let the adrenaline flow off. That, that adrenaline drip is no joke. It is a rush. Let me go ahead and uh, I just literally forgot how to share. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, there we there we go. That's me. That is me. Um, at my top weight. I don't care what nobody says. I was still cool. <laughs> Even at my look, you see it. You see the cowboy hat. Look at that watch. Um, look at the watch. Oh my goodness. And then, uh, you know, here we go. I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, different patterns and different textures. You know, that is that's how you stay stylish. You see the glasses. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, man, that's me. Uh, it was uh, man, life at 485 pounds is. Um, what can, I mean, geez. yeah, life was physically hard. Um, Yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I, I honestly, I, I'm not like, I don't, I, today I'm not, I'm not feeling the, uh, I'm not going to bring the fire and brimstone story. Um, you know, I can, I can really get into that. And sometimes I do I just like what the misery of 
in the darkness of being in a disease, like, and where I'm at, I was, I was thinking about sponsees and, you know, in my first couple of years, I felt like I had to, you know, it says no, there are no axes to grind, no dues to pay and, you know, no lectures to be endured. But I, I, I was sure I was a lecturer to my sponsees in the first couple of years and felt, you know, felt like I needed to strong arm them into recovery. And then the next couple of years I switched to, oh, I need to be more persuasive and, you know, you know, and know the big book and, and now I'm in this place where it's just like, if the disease isn't convincing enough, it, it, like nothing I say, no amount of charisma, um, brilliance on my part, or like I present my story. And if the disease isn't co convincing enough for a person, then what, like, I'm not, surely I, I couldn't even convince myself, you know? And I really do believe in this, um, uh, Man, you know, I had this, like, the only reason I'm here is because a miracle happened. Um, a miracle happened, and I didn't create this moment. And if you hear that that sound in the background, that's people texting me in the middle of my share. Please, please don't text me in the middle of my share. <laughs> I should have put it out on mute anyway. But, like, a miracle happened. And I don't know, I don't know why it happened when it did. I really don't. Um, I don't know how I went from a 485 pound man to, you know, over 250 pounds down from that weight. Um, I mean, I, like I know technically I showed up, but like it really is a miracle and that I, and that I continue to show up. You know, I'm a connoisseur of relapse stories. And I talked to a lot of people in, in relapse and that have relapsed. And, and I don't know why right now in this particular moment of my recovery, it's just like uh, it's it's really I'm real. It's really setting in just how fortunate I am and just how. Like this thing is serious, what we like, this thing is serious. It's a killer. Like it's a killer. And uh and somebody said a, a long time ago, like it's like getting kicked to death by a rabbit. You know, it, it picks you apart really slowly before it kills you. And I've been seeing a lot of people relapse lately, and it and it's just like it's and it's not just the returning back to the food, but I've been observing like the the events that lead up to that moment where you make the supreme sacrifice or where they make the supreme sacrifice in the relapse I've observed starts way before that person actually picks up. And even in my own experience, if it wasn't for my men's group, I, I, I'm a part of a men's group. I'm a part of a, the reason my, like my net, my support, my support has to be wide is because when that line of cunning, baffling, and powerful, and this, it, that's one thing I would change in the big book is, um, it, it, it's not the alcohol that's cunning, baffling, and powerful. It's not the food, like the food. I don't have, you know, there are no donuts, you know, creeping by my house looking to come get me, right? Like, there are no food isn't, you know, looking. Oh, where's Ori at? And, are we going to get, you know, it's not, it's not the food that's cunning, baffling, it's powerful. It's, it's the ism. It's my thinking. And my thinking is always working back towards the food. And I'm so powerless over that. And I need support. Like I need a massive amount of support. If it wasn't for, you know, Susan, you know, like that, that's beautiful. Like she knows me, you know, Lewis knows me. They, these people know me. And, and they, they can they can see my blind spot where I can't see it. My men's group can see my blind spot where I can't see it. I, like, I need to be fully immersed. In, you know, Susan, she says it, be in the middle of the hurt. Like, I need that because I can't see the ism. Like, I can't see it creeping up. It, it, it is cunning, baffling, powerful. It's deceptive, and it masquerades itself in different ways. And, and just because I'm away from the food and just because I've lost weight doesn't mean the ism doesn't play trick is is not active like the ism is still active right it, it, and it and it shows up in a different way
And that's why I need this. That's why I stay in. That's why, you know, I sponsor, um, you know, four and a half people. Um, I'm or, I'm currently like onboarding a couple of people, but I stay, I stay keeping the big book. I, I was like Susan mentioned, I was special events chair and I serve at the meeting level and I do the meditation. I do the writing. I do the prayer. I do all that. Um, because like, I need that. I like, I need that. I need that without, without all that spiritual action, that ism, it plays tricks, man. That ism, this, it, it will, it just finds its ways in subtle ways, you know, like today um, I'm neutral when it comes to, you know what, that's a lie. That is a lie. I was just about to say a lie. I am not, <laughs> I'm on a, I, I just got a new dietitian and I'm on a new plan. And my old my old plan it was it was you know it was muscle memory at at it and it wasn't like I don't have any food thoughts I'm neutral in that respect but when my dietitian told me that you can only have one portion of nuts a day and on this new plan and my beans a protein portion went from a, por a protein portion of beans went from a half cup to a quarter cup like I lost I lost my shit. I lost it. Like I was seething angry. I was, and I had to make so many, I had to make like three calls to talk about how angry I was. And so, so it, it, like, I can't claim neutrality in that moment, but as far as like the desire to compulsively overeat and really go in, like I used to, I wasn't neutral, but it brought up so much when just to have food taken away. Um, so that's still very real for me. Um, but you know, one thing that I have learned, um, with my, my men's group is like, I don't make up the food. I don't make up the rules when it comes to food and I take direction and I take guidance. Um, and, and I found again, you know, I don't know how the ism is playing tricks on me. So I need that direction. I need to be told, Hey, this is what you're doing. Um, and 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 not and and look and also in that experience, I like I allow myself to be to experience that anger, let it come up and work through it, because I know on the other end of it is surrender. I'm going to surrender this. I am going to surrender. It's like that's just I know on the under at the other end, I'm just going to give up. Like it's it's okay. It's all right. Um, I accept that that's my process. Um, Yeah. So, you know, going back to being in the middle of the herd, um, in, in the being a connoisseur of relapse stories, you know, I, th I think, I think about that. I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Like, what's the difference? Like, why, why is it that, why is it that I have this freedom and other people don't, you know, and if I, I wish I could bottle it up and sell it to somebody and, like we we know technically how we like a lot of us have read the big book through and through and it's like I know people know the steps technically and I just like my like why what's the difference and I look at my own experience like the one of the big differences in now and before is just my level of buy-in to this way of life. Um, when a big book talks about like being sold on the ideas in this book. You know, what I compare my experience now to before, and I just didn't have full buy-in. Like now I have full buy-in. Um, like I'm fully immersed in this way of life. And there's and, and it talks about without reservation. I'm I have to give myself to the care of God without reservation. Like I have no reservation. I can feel that in me. Like there is no, there's no, I don't have any version of life where. I'm not doing this thing that I'm not like, this is my, it came to me around like six or eight months. I was putting up chairs at my Thursday meeting. It was an old Thursday meeting where all the, there were um, a lot of old ladies and they were all my mother, you know, like I mean, when I say, Oh, they're like in their seventies, you know, and they, they loved me. They've loved me for decades in all my iterations. Those women have, they love me. Right. 
there were four four or five women that would, they went to that meeting for years and we called them Mount, the Mount Rushmore. Like they, they sat in a line against the wall Thursday, Thursday, Marcy knows <laughs> the hundred founders meeting out in Westchester. I'm putting up, I'm like, I'm, I'm putting out the chairs. And this was like about eight months into this recovery. And just a, th- just a thought in a, in a, in a, in a feeling came like, Oh, this is my destiny. Like it was a moment where I was like, Oh, this is my destiny. Like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing in life. Like this recovery walk. It's like, there's no, I don't have any, res- no lurking notion that. So, so, and that, and I think that's, that was the key difference. It's like, I'm fully bought into this thing. Um, and there's no. Yeah. And it is, it's a beautiful experience. It really is like on this side of it, it's so much, it's beautiful. Um, but when you're like, when you're on the other side of it, you don't see that. And, and it's like no amount of me telling you is going to convince you. You have to experience it for yourself. And, and in the beginning, and even today, still like a lot of it comes down to like, just, just do what I'm told. Just follow somebody else's example. Like that's the hardest thing for me to do. It's just, just follow direction. And, and the reason that that piece of it is hard for me is because I have to be fully sold on that, that my thinking has failed me. Like, I truly believe that, like my, my brilliant ideas got me to 485 pounds. My brilliant ideas got me to where I couldn't wipe myself. So, so with that, with that, with, with that, it's just like, even when I'm trying to force my will in life on, on something, it's, I always have that undercurrent of, bro, your thinking is probably not the best. <laughs> your thinking sets you up. Like, so back off and just follow direction on this. Like, get guidance on this. Uh, Marcy used to talk about that all a lot. You know, part of step three is running my ideas by people. Like, am I, am I frequently running my ideas by people? And it's not just with the food. Like I, it started. It practice. It's the, the the like making that decision to turn my food over to my dietitian and my sponsor and follow direction. And that has has applied to, to it has applied to everything in my life, right? Like that that that's the manifestation of that third step, right? That's an actual physical manifestation of the third step because I'm no longer relying upon food as a, as a source to take care of me, right? So when I'm practicing my food plan is not just about the weight loss. It's, it's me. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a statement saying, Hey, you know what? I'm a trust in something else to take care of me now that I don't have this food. Like, so that's why, you know, you know, this men's group I'm a part of, we're real serious about, um, it starts at the plate because that, 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 that is, that is when I commit to, okay, God, I'm a trust that like, somehow I'm going to get taken care of other than this, this, this way I've known for the, for a long time. I want to read something right now. I want to transition to the book real quick. This is page 98. Um, working with others. It says burn into burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well, regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. So like pin that in your pin that in your thoughts. And then on page 99, let no alcoholic say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. This just isn't so. In some cases, the wife will never come back for one reason or another. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. And I, I like that because it this idea of, you know, um, Whatever the thing is that you think that you need or that I need, um, that I'm obsessing about, that I need, oh, this, this is, this is, this is when life gets good. This is, I need it to go this way. Like, no, no. And that's, that's going to be the basis of my recovery. Like me getting my way. Like, no, it doesn't work like that for me. Um, like, regardless of how circumstances go, my recovery is dependent upon this relationship with power. Like, and for me, like, what is that? What, what is the spiritual power for me? I don't, I can't really put it in the words, but I see it in other people's lives, the miraculous demonstrations of that power in other people's lives. 
And and the reason, like this is this is really strongly on my spirit because um, and on page one fifty eight, it says that afternoon he put on his clothes and walked from the hospital of free men. He entered a political campaign, making speeches, frequenting men's gatherings, places of all sorts, often often staying up all night. He lost the race, but only by a narrow margin. But he had found God, and in finding God, he found himself. Like man, there's so many examples of how. In, like, and I, okay, slow down, Ray. Slow down, Ray. Where the existence of God in my life isn't substantiated by me getting my way. Like, I get my way. Oh, therefore, God exists. No, like, not no, no. Uh, there's been disappointment, hurt, pain. And a matter of fact, living through those moments have substantiated my belief in God and have deepened my, 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 uh, my belief in the power, not getting surviving moments, not getting my way, finding ways through that, those, that pain. And then seeing on the other side, oh, there's something better or it works out in a way that I could never imagine for myself. Like that, that for me, I don't know why those moments are more substantial in proving the, the, that, that God exists and the, the power is real and me not having, and here's the thing. If you hear, if you hear nothing else in my whole recovery, cause I don't know. I mean, my whole share, I don't know where I'm at right now. I'm kind of like in my, in, in somewhere right now, but if you hear nothing else, hear this. I can have circumstances not go my way. I can feel the pain and the deep, the, the, the despair. And I still walk through moments like that. Incredible amounts of self-loathing. I can walk through all that and not have to use, not have to binge like I did. And then still have, have the hope that, hey, you know what? Maybe there's another, maybe there's another. Okay, you have one more minute. Right maybe there's something, you know, like, though, that's, that's the, that that's worth the price that I paid. Like, to me, that is God. Like, because I can walk through life not having to use, and I can walk through any time, man, I'm telling you, I've walked through incredible pain and disappointment in recovery. Moments of disbelief and doubt and, and, in relentless self-obsessions and relentless self-loathing and just dark moments. And I somehow walk through those and grow and become stronger and life continues. And I don't, and I don't have a moment where it's just like, I have to go back to the destructive way. Like that's God for me. Like whatever that is, I don't know how, like, I don't know what to say to you. I just know that uh, if you're struggling, uh, like I hope you have this experience. Um, and it's so much more about the food, but it, it is about the food. And I don't know how to wrap this. So I'm just going to drop the mic here. Thank you. And I think everyone should go under their reactions and choose the clapping hands, a heart or something. And a huge thank you to all three of our speakers, Ian, Michelle and O'Ray. And a couple of things before we turn off the recording for this portion, I have a little PSA for you about weather in January around the country. And I hear it can be pretty chilly in certain places other than in California. So January 13th, that weekend, Martin Luther King, so most people get the Monday off as well, we are going to celebrate Overeats Anonymous, which started in January many moons ago, I believe in 1961, Harlan will correct me if I'm wrong, 1961. Um, 
So we have this little convention and we're going to go back in person at the LAX Hilton. Lewis, what else do we want to tell those people who are in the cold in the Midwest where you are from, but you moved away because it was so cold because you wanted those warm Januaries, right? Yes, that is correct. I just figured out how to unmute myself. Friday, January 13th, 14th, 15th, just like uh, Michelle said earlier, stop watching life through the window bust out of there, come out and join us. It's going to be three incredible days of recovery and fun. Uh, it's a lot of fun workshops, panels, special focus meetings, marathons, an opening ceremony on Friday night, a dance party on Saturday night, yoga, meditation. There's an app where if you register now at oabdp.org, that's oabdp.org. There's an app where people are already setting up their in-person posses. You can get together if you need a roommate to find someone to uh, cohabitate in a hotel room with. Get on there, oabdp.org, oabdp.org. And I will keep dropping the fly in the chat, which we are going to open momentarily and early bird registration ends at midnight on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, I'm so sorry. So before we turn off the recording, Lita, would you like to read our final reading for this portion of the meeting? Thank you. It would be my pleasure. Lita, compulsive overeater, one of my favorite readings. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you could do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us, many of some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you. Thank you.